If you would, please turn to the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be looking at chapter 6, and I'm going to start, I'm going to start with verse 9, and I'll read to the end of the chapter, okay? Hear the word of God. Let me, I'm sorry, let me pray for our time. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help now, that you would grant us to focus and listen carefully to your word, that we would not be distracted, and even more so, that our hearts would not be hardened towards it, but that we might receive it with meekness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We know that the letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of people who are sluggish, and uh, we're going to pick up a little bit from where we were before because it flows into our passage this morning. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, in our letter this, that we're looking at this morning, this is a real gift from the Lord. It's part of the whole of Scripture. It's a part of the whole... God breathed scripture that he gives us. We're not to pick and choose from the scriptures. The the scriptures are a feast for our souls. They're not a convenience store. We're not just to pick up a few items from the word, but we're to know the whole word of God. It's all there for our salvation from beginning to end. And in in parts of the word, we see warnings. We see warnings in the seven letters in the book, in in the letters, uh, in the uh, book of Revelation. We read of one church that they had the, uh, the appearance of being alive, but they were dead. What a sobering estimate of a church that uh, from the outside, everybody would have thought they were alive, but really they were dead. And it's only the word of God that calls that out. Now, I've seen in my own history with the church, sometimes churches have dead spots. And it's not that the whole church is dead, but there's sort of dead spots. And, and so the word comes and enlightens that. And it makes us wake up and we see where we need to repent. Where we too have become sluggish in some way. Hopefully not as sluggish as our our hearers in the letter. But we too need these warnings. We're not just to say, wow, that that was a bad church. Let's move on. But to say, Lord, is this us in some way? Are are we we described by this letter? Not to discourage us, but to, to... to get rid of the dead wood and to move on to newness of life in Christ. 
And so we shouldn't reject these parts. I know they're hard sometimes. They expose our sins. But at the same time, they're a mercy from God. Because this is the real God with whom we deal. He's the God of light. He's the God of truth, as we've said. And so we need to hear these words as hard as they are. Like, just like if you had some pain or discomfort, you'd want to know exactly what it is. You'd want a perfect diagnosis so that you can get a perfect treatment. And the Word of God does that for us. It diagnoses us, it uncovers our sins, and it points us to Christ. So this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to look at this passage under three heads. The title of the sermon is The One and Only Superior Anchor. What a, what a great title, I guess. Uh, it just comes from the Scripture, really. But the first point is that I want to do an Abrahamic background check, an Abrahamic background check. I want to look at the back life of Abraham. I think sometimes it's helpful for us to see the background of the people of the scriptures because sometimes we put them on a pedestal and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, make us view them rightly and it doesn't help us to relate when the scriptures are trying to encourage us in light of these people. So the first thing I will do is have a, an Abrahamic background check. Second, we want to talk about God as a truth teller. God is a truth teller. And then finally, why do we have an anchor of the soul? Why do we have an anchor of the soul? So first, let's look at this Abraham, Abrahamic back, uh, background check. It's interesting how many times in scriptures we have people put up before us, either strictly speaking from the scriptures, or they're there to be an example for us of good and evil, so that we might not do the same thing. So we're to learn the lessons that maybe they didn't learn. Or were to follow in their faithfulness, as they did. In the book of James, James puts forth Elijah. He puts him forth as, as an example. It says, he was a man with a nature like ours. Now, when I read that, I say, me and Elijah, there's, this is like this. What, what's, there's, no, there's no comparison. He's way above me. But as soon as I do that, I've discounted what the scripture's trying to bring, bring home to me. He was a man just like us. Now listen, he's a man just like us, so listen. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And so we think that he's way beyond our expectations, and yet James is saying, look, he's a man just like you. He's not Jesus, he's not perfect, but he's a man just like you, and he prayed. And look what happened. And so what he wants us to do is to be encouraged in our prayer life, to, to lift up more in extensive prayers. That we too might be encouraged to, to pray things that God might do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. I love that passage in Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Mark Kilman and I really bonded over that really quickly. He loves that verse. And that should mark all of our prayer life. We should never put a limit on what God might do. He is sovereign. He is good. And we'll just see. But he's trying to encourage us to pray and pray with hope and pray with the true God before your eyes. And so we may not think of ourselves as, as an Elijah, but we, we, we can't discount what the scripture is telling us. He was a man like us. And so James encourages us to pray. As, as small as we might think ourselves, we're just like Elijah in that sense. But here we have Abraham as an example. 
And I think, you know, we always put Abraham up there. He's one of the greats of the Old Testament. And he really is in many ways. But it's interesting if you look to see what was his background like? What was going on before God had called him as we see in Genesis 12? It's interesting, Joshua in his, in his writing in, in chapter 24, 2 to 3 says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham? Abraham served other gods? Yes, he did. He was an idolater. He was an idolater until God called him out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think that we need to take that to heart. To, you know, we too, before we came to Christ, were in the darkness of some sort. And God comes and he calls and he brings forth his light into our hearts. And Christ shines in our hearts and we embrace him. And we start to move from darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we think of Abraham, we need to think of him as he starts. He was an idolater. He too was walking in darkness. The result of the fall of man. And yet God did not leave him there. And so we we have this situation where he is a, uh, an idolater. And then it's interesting when, when God later, many years later, gives sexual laws, it appears that I think Abraham disobeyed that law. Now, it was 400 years later that the law was given, but it's like we read in Leviticus, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. And if you remember, twice Abraham lied about Sarah. He was was afraid, and we understand that. And he lied about her. He says, look, tell everybody you're my sister. And when he spoke to Abimelech, he says, well, she really is my sister. She's my half-sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. How could he violate the law of God? And again, he brought him out of darkness into his marvelous light. He took him from where he was, and he brings him into his marvelous light. Now he shows the, the glory of what God wants in the law in Leviticus. Abraham had been a transgressor of this law, but God pulled him out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we need to remember that Abraham, too, was a sinner. But God came to him directly with his word, his word of promise in Genesis 12. And he comes back in Genesis 15. And he comes back in Genesis 17. And he comes back in Genesis 22. And all along, he grows in his faith. So that in Genesis 22, he's willing even to offer up his son. Because God said to. This was no delusionary uh, idea of, of Abraham's. God told him to sacrifice him. And when he got to the point of raising his hand, God said, stop. And he obeyed him. He obeyed him. And so Abraham was obedient over time more and more to God's word because he knew he was truthful. It says later that he knew he would receive Isaac back from the dead, and he did, in a sense. But we need to kind of put ourselves in their shoes to feel like what it's like to walk by faith. We have these examples in the Old Testament if we just... Say, I don't need the Old Testament. I just need to read the New Testament. We miss so much. 
So much encouragement. Wow, God really brought them far, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he can bring us far as, as well. So we see that Abraham was a sinner, but we also see that his wife was barren. Genesis eleven thirty. Now Sarah, Sarai was barren and had no child. No children. And it got worse as time went on. But God had made this promise. God had said, barren, barren. God said, though, and he keeps moving. And then in the fullness of time, they have a child. And all the promises that God said about, the, about Abraham's descendants became true. As we read later in the scriptures. All these descendants from two people who considered themselves dead as far as childbearing were concerned. And so I think it's helpful for us to think about this. I think this is the major application. We often find ourselves with no resources. <laughs> we often find ourselves with no resources. Money, emotionally, relationally, go down the line. And I think sometimes we think, oh, this is not right. I, I, should, I should be able to provide for myself. But I think that's a lot of our autonomous result of the fall. We don't want to wait on the Lord. We don't want to be dependent on the Lord. And yet it's the glorious relationship we were made for in the creation that was torn asunder at the fall in some sense. And so now as we move forward in Christ and we find ourselves without resources of any kind, we can look back at Abraham and Sarah and say they didn't have any either. But they had the sure promise of God. And they kept moving towards that. And God did exactly as he said he would. And so we need to be honest about our needs. You know, to, to be honest before the Lord. Lord, I really want this. You know, and I, I'm not talking about God as our bellhop. But things that we, we yearn for and desire, we lay them before the Lord and, and, and say, thy will be done. But we bring it before the Lord. We don't we don't uh, rebel against our, our wantonness or our needs. We acknowledge them before the Lord and ask his help. Because he is the ultimate provider of every good and perfect gift. And so we have to keep praying, but that's okay. But we need to, we need to see the situation that Abraham was in. And yet what happens? He's a father of the faith. So first, we see this Abrahamic background. But second, we see God as a truth teller. God is a truth teller. Verses 6, 13 to 17. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement for the hope that's set before us. That God cannot lie. That is his nature. He is the God of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. That's what it's here for. 
to tell us what is true and to enlighten us. This is, as we said last week, the breath of the Holy Spirit. The teaching of the Holy Spirit from Holy Scripture to point us to Christ. Every time we come before the pages, we have Christ presented to us in one way or another by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's always true. It's always true. It never varies. I'm sure you've had somebody lie to you in your life at some point. How disappointing that was. Maybe in a, in a very important relationship. But God never lies. He never lies. Some of you probably remember R.C. Sproul's take on uh, the song, God Said It and I Believe It. R.C. Sproul was talking about the song that says, God said it and I believe it and that settles it for me. You probably, some of you have heard that song. R.C. Sproul's response was, God said it, that settles it, I believe it. And I thought, that's, that's exactly right. Whatever God said, we should just believe. That's, it's settled. It's settled, and then we believe it. Because God said it, it's all over. Because God never lies. That's a really helpful reminder of how we come to the word. God said it, that's it. I need to believe it. I need to embrace it. I need to trust it because it is God's word. And we need to have this reinforced to us over and over again. But where do we get it reinforced? We get it reinforced right here. We get it reinforced in the word of God over and over through all the pages that God is not a liar. It's told to us in precepts over and over again. It's told to us or it's demonstrated to us in events that God said would happen and it happens exactly as God said. Against all odds, it happens exactly as God said. And so if you want your faith to grow, you've got to be in the word because the word is going to testify to the truthfulness of God. This is where we hear it. We say it to each other as well when we encourage each other with the truth. But here is the primary source. The Holy Spirit testifies that God is a truth teller. The spirit of truth tells us that. And so the more we're in the word, the more confidence we have. And the less we're in the word, the less confidence we will have. I joined the smartphone world this past week. I went to Fair Oaks Mall and I got a smartphone, but I had to wait an hour and a half. So I sat there for an hour and a half and just watched people walk around, listen to the music. And it was song after song after song. And I, you know, there are a lot of, you know, songs I grew up with. 60s, 70s, maybe some 80s. So it's, you know, it's easy to listen to. It wasn't like something was irritating. I started listening to the words. So many of them are lies. They're false words. One after another. I mean, even, even in my own singing, you know, I, I'll pick up a song and I start singing. I said, I can't sing that anymore. It's not true. It's a lie. It's blasphemous. I can't do it. But not here. Not here. It's always good to see that the, the, the stark contrast. You know, sometimes I think that distinction gets blurred, but this word will never lie. It will always strengthen you. You know, many of you, when you hear the word steroids, probably think of something negative. You think of athletes who are trying to get bigger and stronger and faster. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, anabolic steroids were created to help people who had been in war recover faster. And I thought about the word of God is the steroids of the Holy Spirit for our souls. 
that we might be rebuilt into the image of God's Son. That every time we come into contact with God's Word, there ought to be a reception on our part. And that we might see Christ more clearly in some other facet. And so the Word of God is so important, but that is where we see this, where God does not lie. And so that's one of the two things that the writer to the Hebrews appeals to. On the second one, it's an oath. God makes an oath, but he can't make an oath to anything else beyond himself because he is truth itself. When I was younger in high school or junior high, unfortunately and wrongly, people would say something and it's like, I don't know. It's like, I swear to God, I swear to God. And you shouldn't say that. But we understand why they're saying that. They're trying to say, well, I'm going to appeal to a higher authority. But here in the scriptures, the writer's saying there was nobody to appeal to for God. So he made an oath himself to himself. And two, two unchangeable things that God can't lie and God appeals to himself. It's like a double enforcement of that the promises are true and will be fulfilled. And we need that. We need to take that to heart. It's interesting in the book of Joshua. At one point, all the tribes had their places and there was peace. Now, the, the people who settled there weren't the people that started out, right? Because many of them fell because of their sin and unbelief, which is what the writer to the Hebrews is warning against. But after everybody settled, this is what the word of God says in Joshua. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. He made a promise and he kept it. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The descendants made it. There were casualties along the way. The spies that didn't give a good report. A whole generation. In Numbers 26, they take a census. It says none were there from the previous census except for Caleb and Joshua and really Moses. When they'd done the previous census, it was Moses and Aaron, but Aaron had died. So three people out of the whole group were there at this point. And yet all these people eventually would enter in, of course, except for Moses, because he had not treated God wholly. But think about that. All the promises were sure. They were accomplished. God kept his word, even though the people didn't. He will surely have some enter of, of their heritage because he doesn't lie. And he must keep his promises, and he did. And so it would be another generation that would enter the, the promised land. And so God makes an oath, and he makes an oath because we know in this world we really can't trust anybody's word in some sense. You know, we make, we make deals, we, make, we do handshakes, we whatever. We try to be as faithful as possible, but probably Abraham knew that he lived in a world of liars. Where lying is more common than we think. And so he makes an oath, he condescends, he makes an oath to himself. 
God who does not lie. He didn't have to say it twice. And in Genesis 12, he made a promise to Abraham. Done deal. God said it. That's it. But then over time, he does the the covenant ceremony that we we heard about, cutting a covenant. And usually what happens is these two parties go through the, 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 the splitting of the animals. What a great sight. And basically it's like, may this happen to me. Both parties say, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. But in Abraham's vision, it was just God who went this went through it. A self-maledictory oath. May this happen to me if I don't keep my word. So he really has two, two witnesses. He has the one in Genesis 12. Now he has this one. And then after he offers up his son uh, Isaac to be sacrificed, he almost does. God comes to him again and speaks to him right afterwards in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, by myself I have sworn, God is saying, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the, and as at the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He swore by himself another confirmation to Abraham and God's condescension that he would exactly do ex- exactly what he promised. And we, as we read the, the census in 26, we see that all these descendants came out of barren Abraham and barren Sarah. Go through and read those. You're, you feel like you're counting sand. <laughs> you know? But God was faithful. He kept his promise in spite of their sin. And Abraham had this incredible heritage that came because God was faithful. And so what is the writer saying? He says, look, you've got promises too. You've got promises too. You have, you have more light than Abraham had. You saw, you're seeing the fulfillment of what Abraham looked forward to, the, the coming of the Christ. You know more Redemptive history than he knew. But it still requires faith. (laughs) Just trusting God simply. And so that's what he's putting before us. He says, look, we all have to have patience with faith and endurance. We all have to wait. Abraham had to wait year after year. There's 25 years until his son came. 25 years. I said, look, I got something for you, but I'm not going to give it to you for 25 years, you know. Right now, you would think, wow, that's a long time to wait. But that's the point. We we need to understand that we need to have patience. It's amazing how much patience helps to endure. You know, in any any endeavor, athletics, music, anything you, you pursue, going to school, you have to keep going. You have to be patient. And the more patient you are, you think, I can do this. I'm I'm making it. I'm gonna keep going. And that's the point. Abraham had to wait too. Sure promise of God, but he had to wait. Christ holds out to us now glory, but we have to wait. We can't speed it up. We can't make it happen faster than God's pleased. He wants us to wait on him. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. 
We are creatures and he is our creator. We are recipients of his salvation and he's our redeemer. So we have to wait. And that's what he, he, the, the writer wants his hearers to do. Be patient. Remember the promises. And he brings Christ back before their eyes. So we have an Abrahamic background check. We have, second, God is a truth teller and an oath taker. That God can't lie. We have, and, and he takes an oath to that effect. And finally, why do we have an anchor of the soul? Why do we have an anchor of the soul? As I said, we have much more revelation now. We know the rest of the story until Christ comes again. And we're to have absolute hope and absolute confidence in those things, not because of us, but because God is faithful. And he's shown throughout the scriptures that he's faithful. He always keeps his promise. Every one of them. And he has a promise that his son's going to return. And he's going to take us to glory. We have such a great hope. Yesterday I got to go to the memorial service for Arlene. It was one of the sweetest ones I've ever been to. I don't think I ever got to meet her in person. But I met her by testimony over and over and over again. By those inside the church and those outside the church. And I thought, what a great testimony. And at the end, her husband got up and read. (laughs) It was tough. It was tough. He read Proverbs 31. What a great commendation to a wife. And I thought, I was thinking, Steve, you got to pick up the pace. Steve, you got to pick up the pace. You have this great witness. You hear all these things this, this lady did? You know, Rob was saying that there was even more he could have said when he was speaking. But she was such an encouragement to my faith. And we encourage each other when we're faithful in that sense. But I thought, wow, what a, what a great witness to keep on keeping on. She too is, has joined the cloud of witnesses in a sense. She finished the race. She finished well. You know, I, I have to be very plain. You know, I'm, I'm one of the baby boomers. I'm kind of towards the tail end. And just like we came in all together... Lord willing, we're going to go out together. And this is going to be more and more of our experience. And as we see loved ones go, that should be a a reminder and encouragement. Let's finish well. Let's finish well. I think of uh, Chariots of Fire. When I was bringing up my kids, we tried to think of things to do on the Lord's Day. We had Lord's Day movies. They probably watched it 22 times. You know, Chariots of Fire. And you remember Abrams, he had to learn how to get to the finish line. Right? He did this thing is like this. Arlene finished well. <laughs> the great cloud of witnesses that we had finished well. You know, they, they break the tape. But that's for us to be encouraged. To be encouraged. We realize this is not make-believe. This is not make-believe. It's life and death. It's eternity. And so we're in a time where we're going to see many of these things happen. And yet we have the scriptures to enlighten us and to encourage us. Let's finish well. You know, I've prayed that my last years would be my best, you know, and that would be, and I will pray that for you as well, that whatever we have left, we would just, it's, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. Whatever talents we have, whatever resources we have, as the uh, college hymn of uh, covenant is, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. Whatever that is, you have unique and gifted 
gifts from the Lord. But are you using them for the Lord? Are you serving the Lord with those gifts? We have a great, we have a great anchor behind the curtain. You know, the curtain was the holy place, but that was just a type of heaven. And Jesus has gone past the curtain into glory itself, into heaven itself. When he died on the cross, the curtain tore in half from top to bottom. And so we have this great hope of, of glory that we're waiting for. This world will, will face its judgment. Those who are outside of Christ will be separated from God's people. That is the reality the scripture tells us. The sheep and the goats. And it's saying, be a sheep. Be a sheep. Finish well. We have such a sure hope because he, God doesn't lie. And Christ is already there. He's there right now as we're worshiping. And it's like, come on, come on, finish the race, finish the race, finish well. It's still true, no matter how you feel. You know, sometimes our feelings are really distorted. We, we don't see reality as it is. That's why our foundation is the word of God, not our emotions, not our feelings, but the sure word of God. I think of two hymns. I'm going to finish up the end of the sermon here with these two hymns. When Jesus left glory, he came here for a reason. I think of the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin and he did it and it's finished and it's complete but that's not the end of the story because after he died on the cross he rose again from the dead we see this in philippians 2 5 to 8 as as paul is telling us to imitate christ have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is finished. It is finished. That is the good news that we have. But of course, that's not the end of it. He rose again from the dead. And if I have one, one of my biggest grievances is that we never sing resurrection songs in the middle of the year. We always sing them at Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Sons of men and angels say, Alleluia. Raise your joys and triumphs high. Alleluia. Sing ye heavens and earth reply. Alleluia. Vain the stone, the watch, the seal. Alleluia. Christ has burst the gates of hell. Alleluia. Death in vain forbids his rise. Alleluia. Christ has opened paradise. Christ has opened paradise. That's where our lean is. That's where we want to be with Christ. Alleluia. Soar we now where Christ has led. Alleluia. Following our exalted head. Alleluia. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. The remainder of that Philippians passage I was reading said, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our great, great anchor. Christ is there. He has opened the door. He says, come, persevere, right to the end. So our glorious Savior who's risen never to die again, who shed his blood that does forgive sin, who is the perfect substitutionary atonement for our sins, who is the great high priest who presents his blood before the throne, whoever lives to intercede is in glory now. And so we have a sure, perfect redeemer and hope, a a one and only anchor for our soul that will never move because no one can move it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is such a gift to us. Forgive us as we neglect it. And we ask for, for repentance that you would make us those who long for your word, who hunger for your word, who, who love your word, and who take it in and are, are fed by it, that it would be the steroids of our soul spiritually that we might become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. To your glory and our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.